Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Multispeed Technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done. And take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call, 1-855-450-NOAH. It's 1-855-450-6624 or send an email to live at com. My name is Noah July. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off this hour. Joining me, my co-host, Mr. Steve Ovens. Welcome in, sir. Good evening, Noah. How's it going? It's been great. It's been. This is kind of our busy season, so if I'm... If I'm honest, it's been a really taxing, busy past couple of days, but life life is good. I'm excited that we're not at 40 below zero right now. And I've taken on some really interesting, well, I think interesting, fun, like, geek nerd projects. Sometimes, though, you you set out to start a nerd project. Like, I went to to go do something on, you remember that I have the little comm center downstairs. Yes. Well, we've had a series of power failures here in uh, Sioux Falls in the last little while, like four or five in the last two months. Mm-hmm. And while we have solar backup, some of the more sensitive devices will actually blink offline before in that, you know, mm-hmm. couple of seconds between mm-hmm. when the power kicks over. So I go to do something with this little knock and uh, it doesn't turn on. And so I futz with it and it turns on and it boots really 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 slowly and i don't mean like loading the operating system i mean like getting to the bios boots uh splash and so i was kind of like oh well there's the thing i was going to do today sort of situation so now now i have a dead computer to replace that's no fun yeah i so i i I told you i was living off a 37 amp hour battery right Mm -hmm. so a couple little upgrades from that so i the original uh, device that I linked in the show notes a few weeks ago to run Type-C, it works. It charges most of my devices. I found out it does not charge my children's X270 ThinkPads, which those are kind of like before they really kind of adapted Type-C as a real standard. It was kind of like an afterthought. And so it will work with 45 watts or higher. So I thought it would work well with the 45 watt adapter. It does not. So I've now purchased the 65 watt version, which is roughly the same price. And it works flawlessly with every laptop I've used. Additionally, I am, so I'll be going to Ubuntu Summit this year in Latvia. And one of the, I'm giving a talk on the Everything Ubuntu server. And we're going to have an update for you coming up later in the show about the data center. But essentially, what it amounted to was I purchased a small little HP ProLiant micro server. It essentially looks like a shoebox, like a square shoebox. And I installed Ubuntu as the base, used ZFS or a big nice pool of storage and then virtualized on top to essentially duplicate what's running in my 42U rack downstairs in my my house. I wanted to be able to take it with me in the camper and as I travel and all the rest of it. And as I've condensed that down into this little island, it has now grown from that single little HP server into a little 6U portable rack that I've now been able to take with me. Now, it was funny. I remember when I told you that I was running off a 37 amp hour battery, you said, did you run servers off of it? Well, at that point, I laughed and said it was ridiculous. It turns out this week, it's not so ridiculous. You attach a little inverter and you uh, plug your, your server in and you can actually run a substantial amount of time. I was able to get through the night running my little server. Now, I'm only drawing about 100 and some watts, but I'm able to get it to run and I'm able to stream media to Cody and to my little Vero 4K and, and all the rest of it. So I'm I'm slowly, slowly digging into this idea of you give me one single uh, rack and I have everything I need to technologically exist self-sufficiently. Is your storage spinning rust or have you uh, adopted to the flash media? Yeah, that's a great question. So in the HP ProLiant, because really I bought it originally as a backup server and then I was running, I was like, holy cow, this thing's really fast. So then I virtualized on top of it and I was like, well, it's Libvirt, so I can just install it and let's just see what happens. And then I slid all my VMs from the my regular vhost over to this little thing and I went, that's pretty dang cool that everything just works on there. And so that's kind of how the process started. Now, the build that I'm putting inside of this little rack for precisely the reason that you pointed out, I don't want to spend the energy cost to spin the motors. I have a little Intel Nook Skull Canyon, and that's what's running. Uh, it's running ZFS underneath, and then it has 
and then it's, it's virtualized. And that's what I'm using to run uh, my VMs inside of the little 6U rack. Uh, and of course, the, so, so now I'm playing this balance, right? So the Skull Canyon, very power efficient, very small, very quiet. However, you're limited to essentially one MVME slot. Whereas with the HP ProLiant, I have, I want to say it does eight drive, four drives or eight drives, something like that. And plus there's an, yes, four drives on the front and then it does a uh, 2.5 SSD on the top. Uh, so I can get a boot drive there and then I can get four additional drives. If I was to make that for mobile use, I would probably do it with SSDs. But at the moment, the HP ProLiant is running 15 terabyte spinning rust, Seagate, uh, Iron Wolf drives. And then the, yeah, the Skull Canyon is running a nine eight, Samsung 982 terabyte NVMe Pro. Pretty snazzy. Yeah. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to check it out. I'm going to keep going. Then the other addition that I've made or the other uh, modification I've made, I haven't bought a new laptop and I don't know how long. Uh, I just prefer to buy them used. And I got a really good deal on a used Precision 5550. And so my ThinkPad X1 has started to become a little long in the tooth. And so with this, I have hopefully one laptop I'll be able to do everything on. So uh, I'm still in the process of kind of getting everything set up. But once I do, I'm going to try to slide all those VMs over and see if I can get the entire kit and caboodle to run on side of a laptop. And that'll just be one more thing in, in the can. So speaking of low-powered draw, do you want to get to Kurt's question here? I would love to get to Kurt's question. Kurt writes in and says, you... Had a discussion about home assistant hardware, and that reminded me of my setup. It's been running flawlessly for the past two years. My Pi 3B was requiring constant reboots to flash the new ESP home devices and perform regular upgrades, so I started at the options. What I ended up with was a Dell Wise 5010 Thin Client running Home Assistant OS on bare metal on a shucked 2.5-inch 500-gig SSD that replaced the stock flash storage. At last check... It was humming along at 12 watts. So to put this into perspective for you, Kurt is running at 12 watts. The smallest server that I have is running at like 100. So this is tiny. So it's running at 12 watts and has not locked up or left me wanting more horsepower. I have multiple units in various other locations that would typically be occupied by pies due to storage and continued high price. If you buy on eBay, stay on the cheap end of the SSD lineup, a fully Functional operational box will cost you $55, all cost included. For anybody interested, parkytowers.me.uk is a wonderful resource for all things thin client repurposing. And parkytowns.me slash thin slash y slash d100d, big fan of the show. Thanks for all you do for the community, Kurt. So this is not the first time, Steve, I've heard of somebody using a thin client and indeed I have, I work at a place where we have Dell ThinClient, so all of the computing power is actually on Dell servers and it sits in a rack room and then there's network runs out to the individual working locations and there's wise thin clients and they commute back to the, the server. And what's funny is before I understood full scope of their IT infrastructure, when I first sat down at those things, I thought I was sitting on metal. I thought there was just a little computer under there and lo and behold, it's just a thin client connecting back to a server. So these are really fantastic devices. I've also seen thin clients from HP being repurposed as routing appliances for PFSense, OpenSense, those sorts of things. So I think this is a really neat idea for running Home Assistant. What do you think? I think so too. I think that it, it'll depend on what you run and uh, how much you want to stretch your Home Assistant. Like for, for me, I'm running on top of a NUC and I just kind of took a look. I'm My NUC is pulling 25 watts right now. Okay. It runs InfluxDB, Node-RED, the Z-Wave stuff, Grafana. Um, it it does a bunch of stuff for me on top of being Home Assistant. Mm. And so the the little extra oomph and putting it on top of an NVNE was uh, useful for me. Definitely not needed for the NVNE, but that was because I'm writing the InfluxDB database. Uh, and that is for my entire house. Like that thing captures stuff from PFSense to my servers to the actual Home Assistant stuff. Just oh. as a central storage place. Okay. So, so you're using it all of the places. It's not just doing logging and metrics for Hasio. Yeah. It captures stuff from my watch, uh, from from PFSense, from our phones, from, from a bunch of stuff around the house. So... Um, by far the busiest thing on my home assistant is influx and it's also huge like my influx database accounts for uh probably 
four times the size of the Home Assistant backup. So like if I was to subtract it out from the backup, I could do four Home Assistant backups in, in the time I do one uh, Influx backup. Wow. So last week, you might recall, I asked you about your Home Assistant setup. And so that's kind of what Kurt is responding to. I'm interested what you're running Home Assistant on, what you think of it, and what you would do differently if you were to do it over again. I'm in the process where my Home Assistant has accidentally gone from in development to test toy into something that I can't possibly live without. And so now I'm interested in purchasing some hardware specifically to run Home Assistant. And I'm interested what, what your thoughts are. So Kurt wrote in to share about his thin client. I'd be interested what you think live at asknoahshow.com. Chris from Jupiter Broadcasting also reached out and he said, I was asking about dimmers. And so what I'm looking for primarily is a professional works every time, plug it in, forget it, dimmer. And he said, you know, the ESP32s over the Shelleys, one of the one of the main uh, devs is employed by the Home Assistant team. And so one of the nice things about it is all of the configuration, all of the updates, all of that just comes directly into Home Assistant. So if you're looking for something that is a Home Assistant client first and everything else second, ESP32s was his recommendation. And, you know, he disclaimed, he said, hey, you know, at the end of the day, you're still, you're buying a board. And so it's going to be more do-it-yourself do than, uh, than like the Shelleys where you're buying a device and just plugging it in. But arguably a better, ex arguably a better experience if you're prioritizing Home Assistant first. What do you think? What do you think that I would say to this? What do you think I did in my house? Well, I'm, I'm going to guess that I, but you use a mixture of both, don't you? I do. Uh, I went with neither of these though. I went with Z-Wave because lights are considered crucial. And so I put anything crucial on the Z-Wave platform because for me and my mm -hmm. experience in the last, I don't know, five or six years, there's been nothing that has beaten its reliability. The, the ESPs have come close. They absolutely have come close, but I've had a couple of board failures in ESPs where in terms of Z-Wave stuff, I've had one light switch fail on me. So okay. I definitely have had more ESP failures over time because they're like $3 uh, boards that you kind of DIY anyways. So I really like the Z-Wave, uh, the Z-Wave dinners. I put them a bunch of places. How about the Shelly's? Have you ever had those fall offline? So I have one that uh, it it continues to function. And when you go to its web page, like its, mm -hmm. its portal or whatever, it's always online. Like I can always hit that web page, but it is constantly dropping off from Home Assistant. Like I'll get a, like I started, I updated to the latest version of Home Assistant today, like 8.2 or whatever. Mm -hmm. And they start trying to do pushes to your Shelly's to just check in. So it does a push check in. And so now it starts to net home assistant starts to nag me. Uh, I constantly have these notifications saying, Hey, we tried to do a push update to uh, this one Shelly device and we failed. It's because like, yeah. it just, it's, it's inside of a metal, um, a metal outlet. Uh -huh. So like it's in, it's in a three gang metal thing in the chicken coop. There is Wi-Fi within 25 feet of it, mm -hmm. but it drops off and on Home Assistant specifically all the time. See, I wonder if that would have the same problem if it was had a hardwired connection. Uh, that's a good question. I mean, it is the Shelly doesn't have a battery, right? It's plugged mm -hmm. into the mains. Mm -hmm. So, um, no, no, no. I mean, case, hardwired network. Right, right. Good question. I don't really know. I have uh, a half a dozen Shelly's that are not flashed and probably about as many that are flashed with Tasmoda. And this is the only one that actually drops off and on the network. Charlie writes in and says, G'day everyone. It seems that LXC and LXD containers were forked as a new project. And he links to the GitHub news about it is here. And he links to phosphorus.com quote, looks like Cypher, who is a SUS employee made a fork of canonicals LXD this fork was made in response to Canonical's takeover of the LXD project from the Linux containers community. The main aim of the fork is to provide, once again, a real-world community project where everyone's contributions are welcome and no single commercial entity is in charge of the project. Thanks, Charlie. So, Steve, I, I want to start here. Before we even get into taking over and all the rest of it, do you run into LXD or LXC containers in the wild? Not anywhere that I see. I'm, I've, I've used them myself uh, fairly frequently going back a couple of years, but no, I don't have any clients that run this. Okay. So me either. And on top of that, the only place that I have seen it used is with 
Ubuntu slash canonical um, things. So, you know, like Simon from Lubuntu is very big into LXD and LXD and, and all the rest of it. But largely everywhere I've gone where I've stumbled into virtualization in the field, it's almost always KVM. So I, I don't know. It's, it's interesting that it's interesting to me that there's this much interest. It's also of interest to me that this is viewed as canonical taking over the LXD project. Is it them taking over or is it them making sure it stays in existence? No, they took it over. Okay. They, they absolutely took it over. And that, that's not, uh, that's not a hot take. Mm -hmm. If you look at how they approached it and what they said, they basically said, Hey, we're pulling LXC in house, even though that like a couple of the main contributors worked at canonical already, they just decided that they wanted to have more say over project direction. And, you know, I honestly don't care that much, not, mm -hmm. not because of the project. I mean, as an observer who works for a company that might do something like this, like sometimes you look at it and say, well, we're the primary benefactors of this project anyways. And we, we want to have more control over the direction that it's going. So we're going to pull the, you know, we're going to pull all of the copyright and all that sort of stuff back under the canonical umbrella. I don't, I don't see there's anything wrong with this. I think that, um, we're in a hypersensitive world and I don't, I don't see this changing much for pretty much anybody. Normie in the geek lab, you can learn more at geeklab.ninja writes in and says, is there a good wiki software that is normie friendly and easy to search by tags? I'm looking for something to be knowledgeable, a knowledge base for martial arts drill that can be searched easily. So instructors can pick up a tag and make a lesson plan around it. So I have recently switched to wiki.js. And Steve, I think you switched to Wiki.js. I mean, you've you been using Wiki.js for a long time and you're using it kind of in tandem with your existing Wiki solution, right? Yep, I am. So I would tell you Wiki.js is incredibly approachable from a normie uh, standpoint. The other thing I would point out, we have a client and they were building, we have like a template for network documentation that we use. So it outlines, here's where all the devices are, here's the physical layout, here's where the IP scheme that we're using, here are all the devices, here's the port configuration for the switches, here's the patch panel, all that stuff, right? So, and it's in Markdown. And so I, we provided that to a client and they were going through and filling it out. And eventually he gets back to me and he says, well, you know, I have a lot of people working on my team and this is becoming very complex. Is there another way that we can modularize this a bit so that it's a bit more accessible and a bit more approachable to people? And I said, well, the nice thing about Wiki.js is it's all markdown. So you can literally just copy and paste and you could start with the ND or the um, network documentation report. You could start with the NDR, just paste that in as is. And then you could start to break it out into individual pages. And I gave him a brief demo and he's like, this is perfect. This is exactly what we want. So they were previously using uh, HackMD to store this big markdown file. We migrated all of that over to Wiki.js and they've been using it now for a few months. And last I talked to them, it's been flawless. And there you're talking about people who just need to log on and be able to you know, they just want to find information. The only thing I don't have a tremendous amount of experience, Steve, is with tags. Have you used tags in Wiki.js much? No, I still, my brain is still oriented into like the folder structure. So yeah. I still make like folders inside there. Like this is open source and then this is, you know, open source and tracing and then whatever I'm doing under that heading. So... Yeah, I'm I'm inclined to say I'm kind of in the same boat. I, in fact, one of my favorite things about Wiki.js is you can just tap on a button and it takes you from the normal web-like click through the thing to just a, a directory and you can just browse and I want to I want to create a new thing here I want to create a new thing there I want to browse and you can kind of look and find almost like a sitemap so I highly 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 recommend wiki.js for what you're looking at our uh our oh yeah talk about the get back end so um, I just wanted to get back to the tags just mm -hmm. briefly. Like there's a button right on the main page that says browse by tags. So I have to imagine that the tags feature front and center because it's right beside the search bar. But um, in terms of in terms of backups and stuff like that, it, it will back up directly to uh, GitHub. I think they're working on GitLab integration. Um, 
and it also does daily backups and sort of and stuff like that. So I really like the the approachability of it from the perspective of doing backups too, because like I just toggle, I, I basically just give it a network share in a location and just said, hey, do a daily backup. And now it just dumps the daily backup right onto disk. And, you know, I don't want to say you don't have to think about it, but it's not the same thing as doing other types of backups where you might have to back up the database. You can back up the database, uh, but you don't have to. You can just export all of the the backup and then import it into another instance. Yeah, the other nice thing you can do, this is a bit, this is not normy, but it's on you for the setup, not so much on the end user. You can remotely mount a, a network share and have it run your backups automatically and just dump them there. And then that way you don't even have to think about it. It just, it automatically backs up and goes somewhere else. And then from there you can follow your normal backup process. Yep. Love it. Let's head over to JT, find out what's new in the news of Linux and open source. From the Linux Newswire newsroom, this is the Week in Review with JT. For the week of August 13th, 2023, here's the Linux and open source news. CIQ, Oracle, and SUSE create the Open Enterprise Linux Association for a collaborative open future of enterprise Linux. The Tails team has released Tails 5.16, GCC, has accepted Haiku support into GCC 14. HashiCorp abandons open source for a business source license. Sentry, the company behind CodeCop, has also changed to a BSL license. They join MongoDB, Elastic, and Confluent, which all do not allow code use and competition. Along the same lines, in open source AI news, the open source initiative has taken a firm stance against Meta, accusing the tech giant of misrepresenting its Llama 2 AI system as open source. In other AI news, Stability AI unveils Stable LM, a groundbreaking open source language model. French leaders have a plan to build a native AI industry, hoping to position itself as a global leader in the AI industry. And also from France, in open hardware news, a teenager in France has created an open source cell phone based on an ESP32. In open source security news, Intel and AMD rush to put out Linux patches for security vulnerabilities discovered in their CPUs. Sandbox AQ, an AI-driven quantum technology platform, has unveiled Sandwich, an open-source framework that aims to reshape contemporary cryptography management. According to Sandbox, the platform intends to propel organizations towards cryptographic agility. The Monty Ransomware Collective has restarted their operations, focusing on institutions in the legal and government fields. Simultaneously, a new variant of Monty, based on the Linux platform, has surfaced, demonstrating notable differences from its previous Linux-based versions. Ukraine is warning of a wave of attacks targeting state organizations using Merlin, an open-source post-exploitation command and control framework. OpenSSH 9.4 has been released. And lastly, the White House, DARPA, and CISA ask for help in securing open-source software, while at the same time, the White House has announced a competition for cybersecurity researchers that is intended to spur the use of artificial intelligence to identify and fix software vulnerabilities. Penguin writes in in the Geek Lab and says, Hey, Noah, I'm looking to spend at spending some money on Code Academy to learn a language. Recommends me as a machine analyst, but I wanted more information on that field. I'm looking at learning Python, but Rust keeps looking at me like it will be easier to learn. Reasons for Python over Rust. It's easier to learn. It's widely used. Rust creates and can be called Python to do the heavy lifting. And good libraries are basically... For any use case. So joining us via the mumble room is Sleuth. Welcome in, sir. Hello. Hello. So a little bit of background. I've been coding in Python for about seven years now, um, mostly hobby projects, but gotten a little bit larger recently. And so he and I kind of had a little bit of discussion on this in the Geek Lab, but mainly he's looking at um, getting into coding and he was talking about wanting to do some like WordPress replacement kind of stuff, but it kind of looks like maybe that's shifted a little bit. In general, I just kind of wanted to go over some of the reasons to use Python and what he would probably be looking at in terms of his question with the analyst position. Yeah. An analyst is usually going to do a lot of data work. They're going to look at data and they're going to graph it. They're going to... Uh, generally just make it more usable for people 
And so Python's a great language for that. Uh, Rust can do it too, but Python is a lot more of an established language for this. It has been used by data analysts for, gosh, like um, 10 years at least, probably longer. Um, there's lots of great libraries for it, matplotlib, uh, numpy, both of which are very, very fast libraries that actually utilize other languages underneath. I believe both of those are C and C++ based. But it can also do Django, which is uh, a website designing tool. Well, designing tool. It's You code websites in it. And it's used by lots of big platforms, Spotify, Instagram, YouTube, uh, PyTorch, which is for machine learning, if you wanted to ever get into that. Uh, it was developed by Facebook, and it is used in uh, popular open source projects like Stable Diffusion, etc. Okay. Steve, do you have anything to add? For an analyst, I also agree. Python is better. Hmm. Yeah, no, I'll go with better. Python is better because it allows you to REPL, which is the idea that um, you essentially can alter your code kind of on the fly and test it very quickly, whereas Rust is a compiled language. So Rust will shine whenever you have to do something that needs absolutely uh, either memory safe stuff. And so that's something you don't have to worry about in Python. You don't have to worry about memory management or anything like that. Whereas in Rust, it really helps with that. It's meant as a more of a lower lower level language. So if you are producing like solid, large applications, then Rust might be the way to go. But, but generally, I agree with what Sleuth was saying about what an analyst would do. I also think that Python, given the how long it's been around, has the advantage in terms of tutorials and people who uh, you might be able to find to ask questions to or anything like that. So generally speaking, I would also say Python's probably the way to go here. So I wanted to address where he was talking about possibly paying Code Academy to learn Python. Okay. Um, I haven't paid any money to learn python at all uh, i started just with youtube which is where most people go and uh, some notable channels is syntax's uh, channel he also has a website pythonprogramming.net he has tons of tutorials everything from basic python to advanced python and machine learning and all sorts of different stuff like that and then there's also programming with mosh on youtube uh, we'll link both of those in the show description uh, he does a lot more topical stuff, but he also has a full Python guide, you know, take you from not knowing anything to knowing everything you'd need to know to get started with projects. So from that perspective, sometimes it's nice to have a course where they have like you assume, okay, I will assume that the code Academy I've used them in the past, um, intermittently, you assume that they have a plan for, for when they set out on a course, like here's where we're at and here's where our objective is and stuff like that. When you're trying to learn it on your own, you're not only having to establish what you're trying to learn, but you're also trying to learn it at the same time. And so the free resources could be great. And you might actually have some people that are, that will structure their uh, tutorials in such a way. And that is fantastic. But I also wouldn't, I wouldn't discourage somebody from taking a course because it takes the guesswork out of trying to figure out what you need to learn. When you go to YouTube and like, I want to learn Python. Well, where do you start with that? And what type of thing are you going to do? And are you going to do a project? And like, when you're, when you're looking through people's videos, how do you, how do you evaluate what is good source of information? What is bad or, you know, what's above you or things you don't care about? Like I never really cared about doing text input on the command line as a, for instance. And so a lot of places will start with, uh, you know, let's make a, a game like Zork or something like that. So I I don't think that there's anything wrong with Code Academy. If, if you've got the budget to do, to follow through with a course or something like that, I don't see any problem with that. The only thing I would add to that discussion is I, so the way that I learned Python was it was actually on a flight to Australia. I was, I was going to be on a flight for Australia. I knew it was going to be like 13, 14 hours, whatever it was. And I went on... Am, or I went on Kindle, Amazon, and I purchased Learn Python in a Day. And what I liked about the book approach, over, so there's absolutely the, the you know, YouTube slash online inundated with where do I even begin kind of a thing. 
And with the course, like you say, the course is great. If you've got the money for it, you can pay for that thing. But one of the things I liked about the book is for 14 bucks, I was able to sit down. It walked me through very simply how to get Python installed on my system, which is good because I had till we got in and boarded and all the rest of it and took off before I lost internet. And then I had the next 13 hours to just kind of pick and paddle through the book. And what I liked about that, and I heard you mention this, oftentimes you get to a point and I've absolutely taken courses which do this, where they drill into a specific concept, and then in an effort to try to reinforce the concept, they keep coming back to it over and over and over again. So if it's something you don't care about, you kind of get tripped up in some of the other exercises. Whereas with the book, it's kind of nice because you can skip around and say, well, I want to learn text input, and I want to learn this, and I want to learn how to store variables, and I want to learn how to output files, and I want to learn how to do this. So I there, there may be some value in, well, in all three of those, depending on, on specifically what you're looking for, huh? Mm -hmm. And learning style. That's the other yeah. thing too, right? I don't want to watch somebody program. <laughs> That's just not what I want to do. Yeah. Yeah. It's not a spectator sport. You want to get in, you want to start clicking around. Yep. 100%. Weeks ago, we told you about the data center migration. So this was an, in this was an effort on our part to a, reduce the ridiculous costs that we had accumulated by using rented VPS providers. But the other part of it was we wanted at Alta Speed to learn about how to take the, to bring services to people. So the world is rapidly evolving and you're quickly getting to a point where people ask one question, how much or two questions, how much down and how much a month they don't want to buy servers anymore. When I got into this industry, whatever it was 20 some years ago, People would buy infrastructure, you would set it up for them, they would use it. When it broke down, they would call you, you would come fix it, and then eventually they would buy new infrastructure. Those days are long gone. People don't do that anymore. They want to know how much down and how much a month. I can't sleep at night if I sell you a cloud thing. If there's something that you don't own and it's not yours, I can't sleep at night. And I would just rather go do something else entirely than work in that sort of IT infrastructure. It's frustrating, right? And it can be frustrating for those of us that are on the front lines, run into problems, and the problem is with the cloud. Well, there's nothing I can do about that. So I like infrastructure that I can control. I like infrastructure that I can fix. And I like infrastructure that I can give to you if and when you want it. At the same time, I'm trying to marry that with ever-changing customer demands, which are they want to know how much down and how much a month. And so we've split the difference. And what we've done is we build cloud solutions that are completely open source in nature and available to you for a flat fee in a month. But if you ever decide, hey, I want that thing, we'll just bring it into your building and we'll plop it down onto a server for you. And we've got a process and a protocol to do that. And so up until this point, we've been doing that in DigitalOcean and the idea was to move it over to our own data center. So we rented space and we kind of took some, we kind of did some trial and error to see what would work and what didn't work. And if I'm honest with you, it was an abysmal failure. So I bring Steve in and I said, hey, Steve, just picking your brain a little bit. Uh, you know, here's what I tried and it didn't work and it was a kind of a failure. And of course he started asking me very logical, rational questions like, well, what did you expect the load to be? And what did you expect the hard disks to be? And what did you expect the network to be? And I didn't have answers to those questions because largely I spun it up in DigitalOcean and it just worked. And so over the next, I don't know, what's it been, Steve, like a year since we, uh, since we started down that process? Hmm, that's a good question. That's, I have no idea. I should mark that on my calendar for you. We have to go back and look, but I think it's been somewhere around a year that we've been kind of picking around at this. And eventually we, in, we got, installed Grafana, started to collect data, started to learn about what the individual uses are for individual services and all the rest of it. And a few weeks ago, we made the migration to the data center. And so we racked two servers, two Dell servers. They both have a ZFS storage array. So all SSDs, storage, and then both servers have duplicates of the pool. They have mirrored pair boot drives. So if one pair go, if one drive goes out, you still get the other in the pair. And if, even if the entire pair goes out, there's a second pair. One of the really more creative solutions that one of the guys at AltaSpeed came up with that I thought was really cool is he actually came up with a way to rewrite the EFI entry in the event of a failure so that the problem that we were having is if you rip the boot drive out, yes, it has a second set, but the EFI entry is still looking for that first set. So you have to rewrite that EFI entry. And so that took a little bit of hacking, but that was really the only workaround that we did. Everything else was essentially stock Ubuntu, ZFS, and Libvirt on top to run the VMs. So we got everything set up. 
Then for out-of-band access, we used Bly KVM, which is essentially, as far as I can tell, it's Pi KVM by some Chinese company that takes rips off Pi, Pi KVM, puts it on some Raspberry Pis, puts it into an, a, a case. They give you all the little cables that you need to connect to the power connectors and all the rest of it, and then they sell it to you. I will tell you that it mostly works. There is, you know, when you get into some of the older displays, especially when you're converting from VGA, it's not perfect. So I'll, I'll tell you that up front, but it's enough to get done what we need to get done for. And at the end of the day, the data center that we're working with has on-demand hands-on assistance. So we can click on, we log into the portal and tell them hands-on, go do this thing to the server and they'll go do it, which is great. We purchased a Sophos rack mount gateway and of course have nothing to do with the Sophos software, but we've run PFSense on it soon to someday be OpenSense. And that's what's providing the network stack for the server. So the VMs are getting obviously live public IPs, but then all of the management stuff is sitting behind a firewall. So we got it up and running. It took about two, it took two technicians, two days to get everything installed at the data center. And we just ran it empty. Didn't have anything on it. And just, just to poke around, just see how things run. Ran it like that for a little bit. Once we were comfortable that everything was set up, it was running the way that we wanted to, we migrated all of the non-critical services. Everything that just is kind of auxiliary, but kind of runs. And we put it over there just to see how things were going to work. Everything went well. So then we migrated what I would say is just AltaSpeed. It's all of our critical stuff. It was our ticket system and our email stuff and our web hosting and all the rest of it all got moved over there. And that was really kind of the acid test. Now somebody's using it. It's just going to be us before I ask anybody else to put their, you know, treasures inside of the boat. We're going to put ours there. We're going to eat our own dog food. Ran flawlessly. We did come up against one small issue, which was we, the, the, we have a, a main storage box that is obviously running uh, physical uh, rust and we had inadvertently flipped the backup. So the VMs were actually running on the spinning rust instead of the SSD pool. And it was backing up to the SSD pool, which is the back, the backwards way of what we wanted it to do. Um, but it still worked really well. It's just, we noticed it was backwards. We flipped it back around, everything spun up dr dramatically and it was really fantastic. At that point we thought this is good. And we moved all of our client critical services over to it and it ran, it's been running fine ever since. So last week, we migrated the Linux Delta matrix instance. Now this was the thing that we started with last time and it was an abysmal failure. This time with better hardware and a better understanding of exactly what we were skating towards, we were able to pull what has become an atrociously expensive matrix instance on a rented VPS provider onto a dedicated piece of hardware that we own delivered with the sole intention of running a matrix server. And it is lightning fast. In fact, it is so performant that I actually think it does a, it's actually doing a better job for me than my EMS instance. Now, admittedly, that might just be because the EMS instance is hosted on whatever AWS thing, wherever that is. Whereas this is running in Minneapolis, St. Paul, which is just five hours away. So Dakota Fiber takes it straight from Minneapolis data center, brings it in into my hometown and connects it to my home ISP and Steve's ISP. So it fast as it's ever run. Now it is completely self-hosted on our own hardware. And that means that we're able to host more bridges. So over time, we've been adding bridges to it to, and they're self-hosted bridges. So they're not, we're not relying on a third party for those things to fall over. We're able to see them work and, and watch them. And the, the experience has just been really fantastic. So hoping within the next few weeks, we'll be able to re-enable account registration. And again, the idea of matrix is everybody is running an individual little home server and then they all are able to federate and talk together. You're not really, it's not really designed to have one big massive home servers, but we want to do our part to support the ecosystem. And so it'll give you a small entrance, which will be considerably faster than matrix.org. Not that it's any better than matrix.org, but just it's less crowded. And so hopefully we'll be able to turn that back on and of course be hosting Southeast Linux Fest as well as other conferences on there. CIQ, Oracle, and SUS announced their intent to form the Open Enterprise Linux Association, also known as Open ELA. So this is a collaborative trade association to help encourage the development of di uh, distributors with compatible Red Hat in Enterprise Linux distros. This is not surprising. This was speculated from the moment that Red Hat made their announcement that if Red Hat is going to go the way they're going to go, perhaps there should be another alternative, another standard that these distros can follow to ensure compatibility. And I think this is really interesting for two reasons. So the first thing, Steve, uh, is it not of note 
that they still are choosing to target rel they're still going to make rel the you know the standard that's still the king and now they're essentially they're tracking and saying here is a set of standards and here's an agreed upon way that we can build build distros that will match up so i think that that's a, a smart move and irrespective of where i'm employed mm -hmm. because at some point you have to decide what battles are you going to pick and are you really yes. going to try and launch a new thing and then take on the like at the same time taking on the dominant position and <laughs> trying to convince people who like okay if we look at this objectively the people that are looking for the open enterprise linux association they're probably not high paying customers right. to begin with right so not only are you trying to do something new and learn how to coordinate with other people and then you might consider the fact that your user base is not able to donate as much as uh, a rel or an oracle company well, spends if, if to be fair if they were donating to the to to, to the rel side rel likely wouldn't have moved to behind a paywall in the first place like the whole reason this is precipitated is precisely because people are in large part unwilling to pay for this yeah, and that that's the other thing, right? So you're largely you and I I have been a part of this and probably will continue to be a part of enjoying Linux for free. So I am not at all poo-pooing this. I'm just simply reflecting on the fact that you're already fighting over a niche marketplace and you have Red Hat on one side that is arguably the gorilla in here. Like far and away dominating the the space and you're going to try and do something that Sousa and Canonical after multiple years have they've scratched the surface and they do good things and I'm not taking away from that but when you're talking about actually eating into meaningful market share they haven't mm -hmm. been able to do it so you're you're fighting for the people that are looking for a cheaper cheaper alternative and you're going to try and break away from the established standard probably is not a good idea. So I think they took the right approach here. I agree. Uh, it'll be interesting to see if others follow suit, because it seems to me now you have either two choices or maybe it really is one choice with, uh, with a tandem two double-edged blade, right? So for example, you can follow CentOS stream, which is what Red Hat asks you to do, or you can or you can start, I guess, looking to be compatible with open ELA. But here's what I like about this. What I like about this is Red Hat's position, so far as I understood it, was if you want to do something in this space, go do something valuable, add something to the party, bring something to the party, and then we'll welcome you with open arms. To me, that's exactly what CIQ, Oracle, and SUSE are doing. Can't believe I'm including SUSE or Oracle in that. But I am. CIQ, Oracle, and SUSE are going to form this collective body, and they're going to become a standard. And what's interesting about that is if I'm a business or I'm a university or I'm something else and the on-ramp to target open ELA becomes easier than trying to track or establish a relationship with a business, I might just go that route. So I think there's tremendous potential in here. It'll just be interesting to see how this plays out. I try to keep my finger on all things Matrix because it's just become kind of a second love in my life. And recently there was some kind of unfortunate news that happened across the internet. So back in, back earlier this year, really this started in 2022, but EMS, the company that provides paid Matrix services for Element or Matrix, offered to run a persistent bridge for Libera chat, which is the replacement for Freenote on IRC. And as part of doing that, they spun up an instance, Libera.chat matrix server, whereby which, if you join that server, all of the IRC rooms on the IRC side were transparently available to you on the matrix side. So this made the on-ramp for people that were already on matrix very inviting because it became trivial to become involved in any of the IRC rooms and because the bridging was handled by EMS, didn't require any work on your part. You literally joined it like any other matrix server. Also, oh, by the way, because IRC 
and Matrix are both very open interoperable protocols and have been from the beginning and were kind of designed that way, the experience is almost seamless. You IRC users look like IRC users inside of Matrix and Matrix users look like IRC users inside of IRC. You get the idea. Very, very great experience and had been for quite some time. However, the goals of IRC and the goals of Matrix are two very different things. Matrix is designed to be a 2023 communication platform, whereas IRC is designed to be very basic, very approachable. And so there were some, I'll just call them misunderstandings, by which IRC users felt like the Matrix side was unfairly or unjustly publishing information or making it otherwise available in violation of what Libera Chat considers to be their public logging policy. So they don't want public logs posted anyplace. Now, the nature of IRC is if I connect a client, of course, I can scrape traffic from those channels and there's really not much you can do to stop me other than kick me out of the channel. The same is true in Matrix. The only difference is in Matrix, everything becomes federated and as part of the now renamed Matrix Archive, because those chats are public and anybody can go into them, you can see the backlog of those chats. That was frustrating. So in an effort to try to handle some of these issues, EMS rolled out a series of patches that caused some serious breaking changes to the bridge to the point that a lot of traffic on the bridge side was getting dropped. Now, producer Q5 and I have talked about this at length. It's one thing when something doesn't work or when something is a little bit slow. It's terrible when you get messages dropped or messages that are out of order because you can literally start to change the meaning of a conversation that's happening. One person says one thing, one person says another thing, then one person says a third thing, and the reply to the first thing ends up and the third. It just creates a mess. Unsurprisingly, Libera Chat says, hey, you guys either need to fix this or you need to turn it off because our users can't continue to tolerate this. This is not acceptable. At the end of the day, what ended up happening was EMS agreed to shut down the bridge. And so Saturday, August 5th, the Libera Chat Matrix Bridge was shut down. Somewhat frustratingly to me, I saw a very uneven, very unfair characterization of people assigning blame and frustration. And I, I guess the first thing I would say is keep in mind that anytime you, you're using an open source product or an open source service, somebody else is paying for you to do that. So unless you have a paid EMS plan and you're running your own bridge, EMS, out of the goodness of their hearts, is contributing back to the community and to the ecosystem. So I find it really objectionable when people make sure to characterize them as a for-profit company. They didn't make any profit off of hosting your free IRC bridge, so that's not relevant. In fact, the fact that they're a for-profit company, thank God they're making some money so that they have the funds to do what they were able to do. Additionally, Matthew made a post on, on Y Combiner explaining from his perspective that he was deeply sorry that they didn't communicate as well as they could. But at the end of the day, the root cause of the issue is not that Matrix is unreliable and it's not that bridging doesn't work. And it's not, the issue was bandwidth. The bridge was written and run by one guy, one guy. And so when they're trying to focus on the work that they actually get paid to do, the one guy that's running this bridge, again, at the charity and behest of EMS, isn't available to work on issues, particularly issues related to scaling. 25%, so far as I understand it, of Libera Chat's entire network isn't IRC. It's Matrix. And those people only existed on that side of the bridge. And so as they had, as they ran into memory issues and delayed traffic and, 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 and these sorts of things, eventually they... They did their best to try to work on it where they screwed up by their own admission was not communicating verbosely and frequently as to where they were, what they were doing and when they were going to fix it and to which they've deeply apologized. But the end at the end of the day, that bridge is gone. And as part of that, several communities have been entirely fractured. And so I bring that up to a draw some attention to hey, this is, what's, this is what's happening. So if you were in some of those rooms and you're not getting traffic, that's why. 
But the other thing I wanted to point out, when you have to make a choice when you're choosing technology, what things you're going to, what problems you want to solve. There is no such thing as a perfect solution. So I, I work in the morning, I work for a multi-million dollar broadcasting company. Budget is, they don't have a hard budget when it comes to things like their technology and things like their workstations. They use Windows and Adobe Audition. Guess what? There's pops, there's cracks, there's audio drivers issues. Sometimes the program just doesn't launch at all. My laptop running Audacity works every freaking time I open it. So it's not like these. There's this. There's the proprietary world that just works flawlessly, and then there's the open source world that's a complete and utter disaster. Windows 10 makes a version called Windows LTSB. I bring that to your attention because everybody who has enough money gets access to the kind of Windows that we as geeks wish we had. You wish you had a version of Windows that didn't have Cortana, that didn't have telemetrics, that didn't have a bunch of stuff installed by default, that didn't have pop-ups in Windows Game Center and all the rest of that, that had the ability to disable Windows updates so that the computer didn't restart during your critical service. Every geek wishes they had access to that, but you don't. Do you know why? Because you're not important enough to Microsoft. They don't care about you. If you want to buy half a million copies, they will sell you Windows 10 LTSB which is their stable base version that has all that nonsense disabled. But you won't get that. You'll get regular Windows 10 Pro and you'll just work around the problems. So if those are the problems you want to choose to solve, feel free to choose to solve them. Oh, by the way, you should be aware, Microsoft is rapidly skating towards Windows as a service. So I envision a time within the next, I don't know, five, 10 years, where nobody is going to care what platform you're originating on, it's going to be how much down and how much a month for me to be able to get access to my services via the cloud. And I don't really care what client I have. In fact, I'm willing to rent that too. I'll rent that either by way of Windows as a service. I'll rent that by way of going into my mobile telecare provider and getting a phone, a thousand dollar cell phone that I can't even change the battery in and I'll use it for two years and before the battery dies or it reaches its end of life or stops receiving updates, I'll go take it back in and I'll pay my next $12 a month to get the next thing. And I'll just keep renting a phone because I have no interest in owning it. That's one way that you can go about solving your technical solutions. The other thing, Linux I think is going to very rapidly become the place where people will go when they want to own the thing themselves. I have so many non-techie friends now that have gotten into Plex and and all sorts of different self-hosting things. I have a friend that is hosting Image because he wanted a, a replacement for Google Photos and Google Photos stopped doing what he wanted it to do. I have another friend that swears by Google and switched over to C file for doing his syncing because Google Drive wouldn't let him selectively sync folders and it was causing problems with his media application. So there's all of the, the cloud absolutely works in some situations, but it also has some pretty severe limitations. The last situation that I came up with is a few weeks ago, somebody wrote into the program and they said, could you do a deep dive into camera systems? Could you revisit camera systems and talk about an end-to-end FOSS solution? So I did. I, I went back and I looked. Looked at ZoneMinder. I looked at Native Home Assistant. It has some basic camera functionality in there. I looked at a bunch of different solutions. And what I eventually came away with was the bar for usability and, 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 and user expectations doesn't change with the software license. So you have to still meet that same bar. And largely, the only solution that I'm aware of today that has a killer web UI, has a mobile app on iOS and Android, is self-hosted, and there are no ongoing subscription fees. Once you buy it, you own it for life is the Synology surveillance station. They make a device, you buy the licenses one time for the cameras, you own them for the rest of your life, you can, you can, they, you can, you can expand up to the physical limitation of the box. They have, a, they have an awesome mobile app and they have an awesome web UI. The day that that changes, everything that's not proprietary in my world is a placeholder until, I can, until such time that I can find something that takes its place. But right now, that's the best solution I have because at least it's self-hosted and nobody can take the rug out from under me. So if I was to categorize an order of operation for you, self-hosted, nobody can take it away. It's not rented. I own it. Even if it isn't open source, at least I own it. Next would be, hey, can it be free and open source? And finally, easy and compatible with FOSS solutions. So what I mean by that is you cannot take a FOSS solution and expect it to work with a proprietary service or a proprietary thing and not run into issues. 
you have to you have to expect if you're if you're swimming upstream that you're going to have a current. If you can base your life or if you can base your solution from top to bottom in open source solutions, they for the most part will play well with each other and you won't have any any rough operations. And I conclude with this story. So this is so Steve came to Grand Forks and my dad has been working with this software called Cakewalk Sonar on Windows. Well, it started back in the Windows XP days and he's drugging along through oblivion and he has this device made by Mark of the Unicorn. It's a very high end audio interface, but it only works with Windows. And I've tried virtualizing it and I've tried I've tried all the things I couldn't get it to work. And eventually he comes back from this trip and he goes, uh, no, I've only answered to my problem. So what's that? He's like, oh, I was sitting on a plane and this guy tells me that what I need to do is containerize my Windows 10. I don't think you can. I didn't know that you could containerize Windows 10, but maybe you can. And I look it up and sure enough, you can, but it has to run on a Windows host. Oh, can you try to put it on Linux? No, I don't. I don't even know where to begin with that. I'm sorry. I can't help. So Steve is in town and he's over at my dad's house. And I mostly just because I'm I like stirring the pot. I'm like, hey, dad, here's a guy that knows everything about containers. You want to ask him about your container questions? Here's the guy. So he tells, he explains this whole process to Steve. Here's what I'm trying to do. So, Steve, you and I ran over to your hotel. We grabbed your laptop. And how did you arrive at, I'm going to try Arch and VMs? Uh, at the end of the day, the issue with this was that it's a USB device that wasn't being detected by the underlying operating system. So mm -hmm. that meant that virtualize like even if you have a linux server and you're passing through to a windows host you could do that but the issue is always that if the host itself doesn't recognize usd the usb device you have a, a really difficult time trying to pass that through because the host can't enumerate the device properly so in this case my laptop was running arch as chris likes to say arch by the way <laughs> uh, but yeah i plugged it into my laptop I'm like, oh, hey, look, I can see the device. And then I plugged it into some audio thing. I was like, oh, hey, it looks like it's doing stuff. I don't know much about this this stuff, but mm -hmm. I plugged it into some basic thing that I found in the AUR. And it was like, and uh, I was like, well, it looks like it's doing stuff. And so then I fired up uh, the software in Wine and I started twiddling around with it. I'm like, oh, it's doing stuff. Hey, look, hey, guys, it, it's doing something. Here, you, you take this and do something smart with it. So he was really excited. And comes back to me and he goes, okay, okay, we're going to, you need to set my laptop all like this. So he hands it to me. So we, ins so it was, he actually brought it to, to the shop. One of the guys at Ultaspeed had installed uh, Endeavor OS on it. And I got partway through setting something back up and then something wasn't working. And I thought, now I have Steve through the, hey, let's use Arch. Somebody from Ultaspeed has installed and configured the thing. And now I'm on the hook for troubleshooting. And I don't like this. This is not the way I want to do it. So I blew the whole thing away. And I went back to Kubuntu and thought, I'm going to go with my nice, stable, understood base that I just know works. Install Kubuntu, install everything exactly the way that Steve had it set up. And lo and behold, it doesn't work. Can't control the knobs, doesn't do the things it's supposed to do. It's a disaster. I thought, oh, shoot. So I go back to Endeavor OS. I set the entire thing back up and works flawlessly. Now, I tried Ubuntu, I tried Fedora, I tried VirtualBox. It only worked with Arch. And I, I actually, if I may correct you, I don't think it was um, Wine. I think it was actually Libvirt. I think we passed a Windows 10 VM. Uh, it's possible. I don't know. So, but at the end of the day, we, we, got, we, we got it working. And whereas his island of, of, of misfortune was he's trying to drag this software 10 years down the road, Windows gave up on him. <clears throat> They told him, no, you just don't get that thing. And if you want to keep using it, you'll have to use something else. And as software companies have gone out of business and plugins have gone out of business and hardware companies have stopped making hardware or drivers for their hardware, it just becomes impossible to use those things. And so the technical debt and the technical you know, waste of using those devices absolutely has an end life. And if you buy smartphones that you don't have administrative access to, it absolutely has an end life. If you buy computers that you don't have the ability to install a different operating system on, it absolutely has an end life. So all of that to say, open source is there to empower you so that you can leverage technologies to its full potential. And the question you have to ask yourself is, is this thing serving me? Am I putting out what I wanted to do? And then is it doing that thing? Or am I serving it? Am I the subscription fee? Am I the subscriber? Am I the thing that I'm just 
the, the thing at the other end of the rope, and if I stop paying my ransom fee, I lose access to my tech. Ask yourself that question. And if you're listening to this program, my guess is that you're a technical steward and you help other people. Keep those questions in mind when you're giving advice to them. It's often very easy to say, I don't want to do that because I'll have to support it. Music in our ears means we're out of time. We're back next week, 6 p.m. Central. AskNoahShow.com. Noah Show.com.